All right, we will begin with our review like we do each week, and tell me what you remember about 1 John chapter 1. We discovered an important definition at the beginning, which was that the word of life that was being talked about was Jesus, and he was from the beginning of creation. The apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus's physical resurrection, and then towards the end, he started to talk about the fact that believers have sin, but that they should avoid sin. And then we moved into chapter two. What were the highlights from chapter two that you remember? Jesus is our propitiation. And we talked about a fact, the fact that a person cannot love the things of the world and God at the same time. So they are mutually exclusive. You cannot love them both at the same time. We talked about a definition of an antichrist would be one who denies Jesus is the Christ. That is the definition in scriptures of what an antichrist will do. The truth leading to eternal life is found in Christ, which leads us to love others and practice righteousness versus the lie which denies Christ's deity and practices sin. So again, two different paths that we talked about. Um, he ended with preparing them to deal with the false teaching and the false teachers in the church. So we moved that from being a generic definition of false teaching to talking about the teaching that he actually was writing against, which has the term or name the Gnostics or Gnosticism. We had five things that were the basic tenets. And remember, I told you, it changed over the years. So there would have been other times that people added things to this. Sometimes there were less things. But in general, these are the overview of the five basics. So the first one would be that knowledge is superior to virtue or character. The second one would be Right, the non, they start with it, the non-literal tenets of the scripture. Somebody has to do that for you. And so there are a hierarchy of individuals and there are some at the higher level that have that ability. We do not believe that because anybody who comes to know the Lord has the Holy Spirit and you don't get any better than the Holy Spirit, okay? Number three was that God could not be the only creator because he couldn't have created the world that we see and live in because sin is in it. And then that would make him the creator of sin, which we know to not be true and that he is the only creator. The fourth tenet was that deity cannot exist in the flesh. And that led to the final, what I would call tenet, which is they would deny physical resurrection. So that would mean they deny deity in flesh. They would deny that Christ was exactly what the scriptures claimed him to be, deity in flesh. And therefore, since he wasn't that to begin with, then he couldn't have then been resurrected. So they deny his resurrection. That would then also deny anybody's resurrection. So those would be the overview of the five tenets of Gnosticism that John specifically is dealing with. All right, so then we... Um, We'll start on chapter three today. And again, as we go through this, if it is something that I see that it makes it apparent John is dealing with one of these tenets, then when we finish talking about it, I will apply it back to whichever tenet I think it applies to. 
All right, so we're going to go with 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to start with the first three verses. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has the hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Well, that's simple enough, huh? (laughs) All right, we're going to start to unpack that because it is not simple. We're going to start with verse one. What has God done for the believers? See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. What does bestowed mean? Again, it's another word we don't walk around using all the time. If I bestow something on you, what do I do? I give you a gift or I give you a privilege when I bestow something upon you. How did God demonstrate his outpouring of the love for the believers? That we would be called children of God. So we are not just called children of God. We are actually what? And such we are. So it's not just in namesake. We actually are children of God. So in the present time, if you are a believer, you are currently a child of God. What is the result of being a child of God? He says, for this reason, the fact that you're a child of God, the world does not know us. Why is that true? Because it did not know him. So what is the it referring to at the end of the verse? goes back to the world. What is true about the world does not know him. So who is being described as the world that did not know him? Unbelievers. Because remember, we're talking two kinds of people in the world. You're a believer or you're an unbeliever. Who is um, the world does not know God and therefore cannot know believers as children of God. Unbelievers do not have comprehension comprehension of what this relationship is that we have with God. Let that sink in. When you try to have a conversation that you think might be a logical conversation with someone because you've been enlightened about something in the scriptures or something about what morality is or fill in the blank, they don't get it. Don't be upset with them that they don't get it. They don't have the clarity of the spirit to get it. They do not know God and therefore they can't possibly understand the relationship you have with God as a child of God. That's why we need to pour out our patience, right? The same way God poured his patience out on us. Grace and mercy. They don't understand. In verse 2, What is true for believers now? Beloved, now we are children of God. We know that we are children of God. There must have been something that John is trying to drive home for these children of God to understand. We don't, what don't we know about this state of being 
children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. So what does appeared mean? Something that's revealed, it's usually to make visible, to show, to display. That's what, that's what appeared would mean or to reveal. So what is the it referring to? What we will be. That's what has not been revealed. What we will be has yet to be revealed. So right now, we do not know what it will look like to be children of God in the future, right? To the full extent of the benefit of being children of God, it has not been displayed yet for us. It is something in our future that we still get to experience, but we really don't know what it looks like. We can talk about it. We can talk about what the scriptures say about it, but we really don't know exactly what it will be like. So what are believers waiting for? Well, according to the scripture, we know that when he appears, who is the he? Jesus. When will Jesus appear to believers? When he returns for us, which is not the second coming, okay? When Jesus returns for us, the believers, we would call that the rapture. Some call it the resurrection, okay? It's when we receive our, res our resurrected bodies. That's the time that's being talked about here by John. In verse two, he, when he appears, what will happen to us? We will be like him. So why is this true? Because we will see him just as he is. That's when it will be revealed, okay? How would we describe the state of Jesus right now? He's glorified. He is living in his resurrected body. Jesus is resurrected right now. Do we see Jesus in his resurrected body right now? No, so we do not know what it looks like right now. John explains when we finally see Jesus in his resurrected form, then we will also be in our resurrected form. We see two scripture references I'll go to for confirmation of this. We're gonna start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be reading verses 51 through 53. So 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on the immortal. We also see confirmation in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. 
So what do we learn about the resurrected body? We will be changed to imperishable and immortal, fully transformed to be as Jesus is now. The bodies we received at the resurrection, or people called the rapture, is an imperishable and immortal body. That means that, guess what? Our bodies will no longer deteriorate. I'm excited about that. And our bodies will be forever. It doesn't deteriorate, and it's your forever. How amazing is that? This is the blessed hope only the Christian has about his or her future. That's what brings us the joy. That's why it's called the hope. John is directly refuting the Gnostic teaching of deity not dwelling in flesh as he declares Jesus is a human resurrected form now. John is also contending with the teaching that there will be no resurrection by declaring clearly, we will be like him. We will be resurrected as well. John is repeatedly contending with the false teaching that has been brought to the early church. In verse three, how does John continue? He says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. So what is the hope referring back to? It would go back to in verse two when he said, we will be like him when he appears, right? So the the resurrection or rapture. So this hope is in the resurrection. This hope is rooted in what? Fixed on him. And who is the him? Jesus, fixed on what about him? Because he, well, first of all, let's answer what, what about him is the reason that we can be fixed on him, that we can have the hope, the thing we just walked through. It's not in the verse, but what did we just walk through? He is resurrected. And through belief in the gospel, the believers will also be resurrected. We will be like him when he appears. In verse three, also, when a believer lives with this hope, what happens to him? And that's back in verse three. He purifies himself. What comparison does John use to demonstrate how pure the believer is? Just as he is pure. Who is the he again? Jesus, I just want to make sure we always know who the he, are we talking Holy Spirit, God, or Jesus? It's talking about Jesus. So when we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what part of a believer is purified or without sin? It's your spirit. So that's because we receive what? We get the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians gives us a description that, of that in chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, we hear, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, 
who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Notice that it revealed the gospel of salvation. Having believed that, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's when you have the Holy Spirit. Before you had the Holy Spirit, you had what kind of a spirit? You had a dead spirit. This dead spirit we inherited from Adam. So when Adam sinned, the spirit, his spirit, became a dead spirit. And we go all the way back. Where do you think we're going to turn when we're going to look at something about Adam? We're going to go all the way back to Genesis. And we're going to look in chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you will surely die. So Adam's physical body did not die on that day. He continued to live. So what did die on the day that he ate? His spirit died that day. This is the dead spirit that every person descended from Adam inherits. When Adam sinned, his spirit became dead and there was broken fellowship with God that occurred. That was the impact of the dead spirit. But God provides a way to correct this dead spirit and make our spirit pure. Find confirmation of that. We're doing a little popping around in the Bible here, but we're going to go to Titus chapter 3, and we're going to do verses 4 through 7. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So in verse 4, when did the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appear? What was the event in history that you can point to when God poured out his love on mankind? The entire gift of Jesus Christ from beginning to end, the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, right? Jesus Christ in his entirety is that gift. In verse 5, God saved us how? By the Holy Spirit, right? It ends with the words, by the Holy Spirit. Those things that occurred happened by the Holy Spirit. And in verse 6, God saves through who? Jesus Christ, our Savior. We don't have to guess, right? Each verse, it's clearly stated so we can see the progression. In verse 7, what did God do through his grace? We are 
Justified. That's the first word I want you to identify with. We are justified. We are justified and we are then what? Then we're heirs. First justified, then heirs. What are heirs? They are children of God, those who inherit what the Father has. What are we promised as heirs in these verses? Eternal life. You don't get a better gift than that. Let me reread Titus chapter 3. And instead of all the pronouns, we're going to put in God. Okay? But when the kindness of God our Savior and God's love for mankind appeared, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to God's mercy, by the washing of of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. When God poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by God's grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you see how that impact of understanding that God is the actor every single time draws us back to it's God, it's God, it's God, it's God. And here it declares what God used Christ for and what God used the Holy Spirit for. But God is the actor. So when someone believes in the gospel, the Holy Spirit regenerates the sin nature, that dead sin spirit that you had, to a living and eternal spirit. 1 John 3.3 describes this as purified. This is how we know that John is talking about sin in the context of the spirit and not in the flesh. That's why we spend time here. What is John talking about when he's throwing the word of sin and righteousness all around? He must be talking about our spirit because that is the thing that we have that's purified when we become believers. You have a purified spirit. Knowing that, let's go back to 1 John in chapter 4 and let's do verses 4 through 10. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who was born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. When you first read that, does it give you the impression that as a believer, you should never sin? These are the verses that many false teachings come from because they have not understood where the sin is occurring. That's why I spent time in the beginning 
You are purified in spirit because Jesus is purified in spirit and you have the Holy Spirit. That is what is pure. I hate to break it to you, but you will sin in the flesh. I don't know about you, but I'm sure I had a couple this morning just driving here. That is reality. So when you take reality and you compare it back to the scriptures, it should make you go, this doesn't make sense what John is saying. If I'm believing that it is, I can live without sin because I know it's not true in me. And I'm pretty sure looking around at some other people that claim to be Christians in my life, it's not true for them. That's when you have to stop and go, then there must be something else that John was talking about. And that's what drives you back to the understanding he's talking about sin in your spirit. So in verse four, as we unpack this, what is the contrast given to one who purifies himself? He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Again, there must have been something going on with some word choices that, of the teaching that the Gnostics were bringing in that he's making sure lawless and sin are defined as each other. So the Greek word translated for lawlessness is anosmia, and it carries an implication of wickedness. It is a brazen opposition to God and a rejection of God's law. So John is giving that declaration, sin equals this. This is again a discussion of the position of the false teachers that John has been addressing. Virtue is more important to God than knowledge. A dead spirit still living in its sin nature precludes virtue. In verse five, what is Jesus's response to sin? He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin. So Jesus came in the flesh and he appeared to men for the express purpose of taking away sin. We have confirmation of this teaching from this same author in the gospel of John. In the very first chapter of the gospel of John, verse 29, we read, the next day he saw Jesus coming and the he will be John the Baptist. If you go back and you read that in context. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist declared when he saw Jesus coming that that was the purpose of Jesus was to take away the sin of the world. So now back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus accomplished this. And yet what do we read is true for him? In him, there is no sin. So how did Jesus avoid being born with the inherited sin nature that we got? How do you think that happened? He wasn't a descendant of Adam. For some, that's a hard thing to understand. So we're going to look at a few scriptures that tell us very specifically how we know he was not born with the sin nature. What God did special for Jesus so that he would not inherit that sin nature. So Jesus was not born with the sin nature because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and not the seed of men, which is the significance of the virgin birth of Jesus. We see that in Matthew chapter one. So back in Matthew chapter one, we'll look at verses 18 through 21. 
Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus did not inherit that sin nature from Adam. That's the first way that he avoided having sin. But Jesus never committed a sin in his life. And there we will also look at scriptures for confirmation. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin. He committed no sin. So God placed sin on him, my sin. But Jesus did not have his own sin. Jesus never sinned. We find in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, confirmation again with more description. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. Verse 22, who committed no sin? Verse 24, he bore our sins on his body on the cross. Do you remember when we talked about propitiation? Those sins are why the wrath could be poured out on him. Your sin was there. Wrath was poured on it there. That's the plan that God had for redemption. It should blow your mind. Hebrews continues in chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people because he did once for all when he offered up himself. These verses testify to the fact that Jesus did not commit any sin in his life. He was holy, he was innocent, and he was undefiled in his spirit and for Jesus in his life. So in his flesh, there was no sin. 
We do not have that testimony. Back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, because of what Jesus accomplished, what is true for the believer? No one who in, abides in him sins. Jesus came to take away our sin. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He bore the consequences of our sins, which was the wrath of God. That's why we spent time talking about what true propitiation looks like. He offered up himself as the sacrifice for our sins so we might become righteous of God in him. The righteousness is seen in the Holy Spirit in us when we become believers. Our spirit, your spirit as a believer, is now sinless since it is the Holy Spirit. In your spirit, you are sinless. That is a true statement. That is hard for many people to comprehend. Galatians chapter 3 gives us some more detail on that. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you now. Your spirit has already been regenerated. Think about that. It's in here. If you could just pull it out and look at it for a while, it doesn't need to be shined up, right? It's already in there. He doesn't leak out. He's all perfect. He's all in there. You got the perfect Holy Spirit when you became a believer. Let that resonate in your life. When you deal with those struggles, stop yourself and go, it's all shined up inside. That spirit inside of me is the Holy Spirit. Verse six, back in 1 John, what is the contrast of having this Holy Spirit according to John? He says, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. What sin is John talking about? The spiritual sin. No one who sins has seen him or know him. Where would they be sinning? Their spirit is a dead spirit still. It has nothing to offer but sin. Anybody who doesn't have the regenerated spirit of the Holy Spirit is walking around with a dead spirit, which means all it can do is sin. These sins would need to be what keeps a person from seeing him or knowing him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. When one abides in him, they receive the promise of the Spirit in faith. And through the spirit of God cannot sin in his spirit. When one does not abide in him, then the opposite is true. He does not have the spirit of God and only the dead reigns, the dead spirit reigns in him. Thus he can only sin. Does that make sense? 
Why we have to make it clear where the sin is happening to make sense about what John is writing to us. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, how does John continue to address this topic? He says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. How does John now address these believers again? He says, little children, what is John's focus? Make sure no one deceives you. John is again warning against those who were bringing false teaching to this church. What is the truth that John established first? He says the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So righteousness is used in many different places in the scripture. And when you look at the notes, you're going to see I've done a clip of what that transliterated word is in righteousness. It's been used in place of and, and been translated in other places as blameless or innocent or just or one in the right or one who, one, ones who are in the right or right or righteous man or righteous men or righteous one or righteous ones or righteously. You see the theme? That's the theme. The believer can practice righteousness because Jesus is righteous. We can only practice what we receive from him. It, may, it might have been, and this is not in the scripture, so this is according to Annette, I always try to identify that. It might have been that the false teachers were saying that believers could not be or practice righteousness now, which would make sense since they negated that the flesh and the spirit had anything to do with each other. John wants to make it perfectly clear that believers can practice righteousness now because they are righteous by virtue of the Holy Spirit they've received. And it is possible because Jesus is righteous. He keeps pointing back to that. Jesus was holy and righteous. When you become a believer, you have the spirit of righteousness. You do not sin in your spirit, but you also have access to the power to overcome sin just as Jesus did. That's the encouragement that John is giving. That must have been the teaching that was being brought to these believers was to think, you don't need to worry about what you do in this life. Don't worry about it. And John's like, mm -mm, no, no, no. Don't let anybody deceive you. In verse eight, what is the contrast to those who practice righteousness from Jesus? Mm, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Let me remind you that there are only two kinds of people in the world, right? There are believers and unbelievers. Those who are children of God and those who are of the devil. And those who are of the devil will practice sin. They don't have any choice. That's all they have. They can't practice righteousness. What is true about the devil? He says, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. This is a thought that is also confirmed by John in his gospel. And he uses the very same words. So he is confirming through the words that Jesus himself spoke in John chapter eight, 
verses 43 and 44. So John 8, 43 through 44. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whatever he, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Could Jesus be more clear about who Satan is and what the devil does? John recorded these words of Jesus in the gospel, and he now is bringing him into this letter. Back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. What did Jesus do because of the sin of the devil? The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil are really too many for us to list all of them, right? But we have confirmation of the worst of his works in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So the devil sinned from the beginning. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. The devil is a liar, and the devil had the power of death. Jesus came to destroy all the works of the devil, and now the devil no longer has the power of death. Wait, do Christians still physically die? Yes. What death does a Christian not experience? Spiritual death is no longer on the table for a believer. Why are we not to fear the physical death then? Because we have the spiritual promise and the spiritual life, and we are promised a physical resurrection. That's why a Christian can live the way John is asking them to live, to not be in fear of death. We can still fear the process. I don't want to go through this or I don't want to go through that. But the actual what's going to be on the other side, there should be a, oh, I'm kind of looking forward to it. What is it going to be like on the other side? Who, who do I get to see? I'm going to be in Jesus's. You know, I love that song. I can only imagine. It just makes me cry every time. I'm like, oh, I can only imagine because we can't. It's beyond what we can comprehend. That's the power that was stripped away from Satan when Jesus Christ came to earth, when he was born, when he lived, when he died, and when he was resurrected. That has been ripped away from what Satan has power over. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, what does John say is now true for believers because of what Jesus did? No one who is born of God practices sin. 
because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. He's saying it over and over. You cannot sin, but you cannot sin where? In your spirit. What does it mean that his seed abides in him? So when one becomes a believer, it is the Holy Spirit that abides in you. What does it mean one is born of God? Right, you are spiritually born of God, and that is often referred to as to be born again. We are born again. That's a strange phrase to use when you're around unbelievers. We find that Jesus had to describe this to someone when he walked the earth. Do you remember the story? Nicodemus. So we're going to read that story because we're going to see what Jesus spoke about this concept of being born again. This is found in John chapter 3. And we're going to read all the way from verse 1 through 21. Today, you're getting the full meal deal. We are using the scriptures. <laughs> now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as him having been wrought in God. So through that explanation that Jesus walks Nicodemus through, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that to be born again is a reference to the spiritual birth of a person. If you look clearly at the verses, I'm going to go back in verse 3. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5, he highlights that you have to be born of water and the spirit. The born of water is a reference to your physical birth. And then the born of the spirit is your spiritual birth. Those are the two things that exist for anyone that's going to enter into the kingdom. Both of those births. Nicodemus is focused on only what kind of birth when he questions Jesus. All he can talk about is the physical. It's all he understands. So when he hears birth, he's like, wait, wait, I can't be born again. He's trapped in thinking about the physical. And Jesus is like, how can I talk to you about spiritual things and the things of heaven if all you're going to think about is the physical things? I can't even explain to you things on earth and have you get it. How could I possibly be revealing things to you from heaven? Boy, Jesus was such a patient man. <laughs> Back to 1 John. Do you see why I'm spending time walking you through this? It's so important we get this right. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. John establishes it is possible for the readers of this letter to know what? By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious John declares the first measurement of unbelievers how? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So those claiming to be children of God but do not practice righteousness can be identified as what? Unbelievers. What is the second measurement of unbelievers? Nor the one who does not love his brother. So when someone does not demonstrate love of other believers. This is also a sign that they are not believers. John covered this earlier in this same correspondence. We looked at it back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, where we, where we read the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. It is clear the false teachers were doing things to demonstrate Hatred towards other believers. This hatred was probably focused towards the apostles and anyone who would stand against their false teaching. It was a clear sign they were not of God and contrary to what they were professing and that they did not truly know God. What tenet does this go back to? For the Gnostics. Knowledge of God is clearly not the most important thing to achieve. If it did not lead to knowing God and demonstrated in their actions, this was John again dealing with the false tenets of Gnosticism. 
He dealt with the Pharisees earlier in one of the verses that we read. Did the Pharisees know the law up here? Could they recite it by memory? Yes, they could. They knew God only in that way. They did not know God or have a relationship with God. It was possible in the Old Testament. It was possible in Jesus's day. And it's possible in the church age that people can know of without knowing. A believer's conduct manifests in relationship with God in avoiding sin and in loving fellow believers. But let me reiterate, this is information for you to take in. Do you know God? Not to run around doing this to everybody else. That is not what John's saying. He is saying when somebody comes in and starts teaching these things, you need to run the other direction. But he's not talking about lining up the Christians and having them take the test and find out which ones meet these standards. That's not what Christianity is about. That would be the opposite of loving on other believers. So my question to you, do you know God here? Not here only. This is what's important. Do you have that relationship with God? Do you avoid sin knowing the Holy Spirit is inside of you and witnessing? It's like he's got a video the whole part of your life. He's right in there all the time. Does that help you avoid sin in your life? I know it does me. Do you seek forgiveness from God when you do sin? Do you demonstrate love to your fellow believers? This is not because I want to give you a test I want you to think about where is your relationship with God. First of all, I want you to verify you have that relationship. And if you don't, come talk to one of us, me or the pastors or the elders. You need to know God. You need to know that Holy Spirit is inside of you. And you will know that. You will have a change in your life. That will be the testimony. That's why often they ask, what is your testimony when you want to join a church or a group or just somebody wants to get to know you? What changed in your life? How did you becoming this Christian you claim to be? What made you different? And there's an open door to share what he's done in your life. This chapter has been taken out of context over and over and over throughout the history of the church. But do you see why and how it can so easily happen? If you think that you cannot sin in your flesh and you make that a standard of your own righteousness, how sad would you be? If you thought that the real standard was that you would just stop sinning because you declared to be a Christian and you knew you couldn't stop sinning, what sadness would that bring? I can promise you, I would not call it the good news. It would be the really sad, sad everyday news. That's not what he brought. So it cannot be talking about that, but it has to be talking about something or it wouldn't be there. Do you see how it lines up when you understand it's talking about in your spirit? As a believer, you can now do righteous acts before God because you have the Holy Spirit and you're not seen as righteous for your righteous acts. 
You're seen as righteous because of Christ's righteousness imputed upon you. Because he was the propitiation on the cross. All those big Christian words thrown out there. In that, you can please the Father. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter how many good works by the world standards that you do. God doesn't see them as righteous. So when you have a dead spirit, when your sin nature is what reigns, there is nothing you can do that would please him. It cannot be in his will. That's what John is talking about. And who knows to the extent that these false teachers were driving home horrible teachings for these believers. And that is what John desperately is contending with. Do not listen to these men. They do not have the spirit. They do not know what they are talking about. And you can know that because they must have been practicing very awful, unrighteous things that were clear and evident. We see that in our church today. Things that are sin, they call not sin. And they practice it in public. Oh, and they want you to go along and agree with it. That's what's going on then. It's gone on ever since. And we see it going on now. It's not new. It is false. And when somebody declares to be a believer and can out and out hate another believer, they need to be taking some inventory about where their heart is. And you just need to have an inventory to go, hmm, don't know that I want that teaching. Remember, just be real careful with the difference between discernment and the judgment of others. 